picture uh, circulating around the news and on social media of an Indian man kissing uh, or kiss, being kissed by his father after he was rescued from a collapsed tunnel. You can see the image there. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the story, uh, but there was a landslide in the Himalayas on November 12th, and 41 workers were trapped for 17 days inside of a tunnel that they had been constructing. There was this, a thick, after the landslide, there was a thick pile of debris and dirt and rock, about 60 meters that separated them from the mouth of the tunnel, and these workers were trapped inside. As a BBC article put it, rescue officials were able to establish contact with the men and supply them with food, oxygen, and water so that their basic needs were met, but the risks of getting them out alive still remained. The rescue operation was a complicated one and involved the use of excavators, drilling machines, and numerous personnel. Eventually, miners hacked their way through the last few meters of rubble by hand to reach the men. Now, the parents of one of these workers who was trapped, a young man named Manjeet, the, his parents were interviewed, and the mother shared that she had actually pawned off her jewelry just so she could afford the money to help pay for her husband to make the trip out to the hills. It was a 600-kilometer journey just to get from their village to where the site was. So when the men were finally rescued, the father of Manjeet, his dad, was waiting for him at the mouth of the tunnel to welcome him out. As soon as he saw his son, he, he grabbed him into an embrace and kissed him. And this is the moment, this snapshot moment has since gone viral all around the world. It's captured people's hearts. Why? Why does something like this capture our hearts? Why is something like this so universally moving, so easily something that can tug on our emotions and really captivate us? Well, simply this, because the angst of longing is something that we can all relate to. The angst of longing is something that we can all feel and relate to, that longing for a reuniting, for restoration, for healing, for peace. We all long for that. We can all resonate with that. And, and whenever that moment of longing is over and the, and the relief rushes over us because the thing that we've been longing for has been received, it's been gained, it's been, it's been received, it's, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming because we've been waiting so long for it, because we've been longing for it. Once it's received, it's overwhelming and often really deeply emotional. Advent is the time of the year, it's the season in the Christian calendar where we enter into that kind of a longing, that, that yearning, the ache for something that we've either lost or are missing, the, the heart-wrenching waiting for something that we want to see and feel so bad. Like a child stretching out his arms to be lifted up by one of his parents. That longing to receive comfort and assurance and be assured that our fear that everything isn't going to be okay, will actually be okay. To be assured that there will be peace. This is what Advent is all about. This is what Advent is all about. The, the bells and the ribbons and the trees and the lights and shimmering things are all beautiful, but they only give us a glimpse of that, of that harmony and that unity and that peace of mind that we're all truly longing for. So we start this Advent series then by looking at the beautiful words of Mary's song, of her Magnificat, 
as tradition has called it, which we read in Luke 1, verses 46 to 56. But before we get there, let me just give you a little bit of context. Let me just remind you of Mary's story, right? Mary's been visited by the angel Gabriel, okay? And she's been told that she's going to conceive and give birth to a son, but not because of, you know, any funny business with Joseph, but because the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her. And the power of the Most High will overshadow her so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Not the Son of Caesar, not the Son of Abraham or David, not the Son of even Joseph, the Son of God. And overwhelmed by this news, Mary then runs to the only other person that she knows will understand, her cousin Elizabeth who's also just received news from an angel that she too will conceive in her old age. So we've got one woman here who's conceiving and giving birth to a son before she thought she would, and another woman who's going to conceive and give birth to a son later on in life than she thought that she would. But they run to each other, and there's this beautiful encounter, one of the most beautiful encounters in all of Scripture. Mary runs into the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth, And the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy at the presence of this woman coming in because her presence is ushering in the king, the new king to be born. And Elizabeth then bursts out with praise for Mary for believing that the Lord would fulfill his promises. And not just that he would fulfill his promises, but that he would fulfill his promises through her through her. And then we get these words, starting at verse 46. You'll see them on the screen as well. Luke chapter 1, 46 to 56. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary then stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this isn't the first time in Scripture that uh, someone like Mary has recited a poem or a song in this sort of a fashion, in this sort of a style. In 2 Samuel, chapter 22, um, I mean, David himself wrote a lot of the Psalms, but there's a specific song that he sings in 2 Samuel 22 that has a lot of similarities. He says in verse 28, you save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low, right? Same kind of a theme. And then in verse 51, he gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever, there's a lot, of, a lot of similarities in style, a lot of the same ways of looking at God and how God works among his people. But here's the major difference. David's very much focused on his own kingship, on, on what God is doing through him as king and through his own royal tenure. Mary, alternatively, is looking at the new king, 
She's looking outside of herself at the new king who's going to be coming and what that new kingdom is going to look like. Mary, in other words, is focused on the big picture. She's thinking broader than her own circumstances. And because of this, Mary might actually have had a, a better grasp on God's mission than David even did. Her song is also a lot shorter, which means she's better at getting to the point. <laughs> there's, a lot, there's actually a lot more similarities in tone and style, um, and perhaps you've heard this before, to the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel earlier on. After being promised the gift of a son, after years and years of angstfully waiting for God to come through for her, she bursts out in a prayerful song about the mercies of God. See, both Hannah and Mary highlight not just what God has done for them, which is so often our inclination to just be thankful about what he's done, but they highlight what his deeds imply about who he is, how he looks on the plight of the lowly and the humble, not, you know, kings and royalty and nobility and all the fancy people, but lowly and humble folks like themselves, and, and how he flips things around. The hungry are no longer hungry. The weak are actually the strong ones. Those who stumble are filled with strength. Those who are barren and empty are filled. This is what happens in God's kingdom because this is what he cares about because he looks on those who are in a humble state. Look at Psalm 136. He remembered us in our low estate. He has been mindful of me and my humble state, said Mary in verse 48. He's been mindful of me. In other words, he has turned his gaze towards me in my, hum in my humility, in my lowness. He's turned his gaze towards me and he's acknowledged me. How many of us wouldn't love to just hear this morning that God is being mindful of us, that God is paying attention to our circumstances, that we've not been forgotten, that God has turned his gaze towards us. He sees our broken hearts, he sees our longings, our doubts and our fears, our concerns and our dreads, and that he's mindful of us. He's mindful of us. Mary not only felt that loving gaze on her, but look at how she reacts to that gaze. It's not, you know, feeling pride or feeling favored over someone else. Like of all the women in Israel, he picked little old me. Like she's not doing that. She's not doing that. She's genuinely feeling humbled. She's feeling small in light of what God is doing, right? We can have two different reactions when, when favor is on us. We can feel prideful and happy about it, or we can feel humbled and like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you picked me, kind of small about it. We don't usually like feeling that way. We don't like feeling small, belittled, less than, looked down on. But Mary strikes me as someone who just wouldn't have cared about that. That for her, recognizing her smallness was actually a prerequisite to being used by God. It was a prerequisite to being used by God. Because it, this is a God who brings down the high and the mighty, down, and then lifts up the humble, the small, the insignificant, the forgotten, the weak, right? Again, our inclination is always to want to feel strong and powerful and in control, but it's actually the weak and the vulnerable and the humble that have the advantage in Scripture. Mary understood this, 
She understood that this was her Lord's heart because what she speaks in these words is what her own son, the Lord himself later on, will preach about. And not just in the Beatitudes. Give me a few moments here to remind you of one of the parables that Jesus himself said. In Luke's gospel later on in chapter 7, a Pharisee invites Jesus into his home. But while they're there and while they're eating, a woman who's notorious for having a sinful life comes in with an alabaster jar of perfume. And she, she starts um, pouring it out on Jesus' feet and weeping as she does it. And the Pharisee, of course, is disgusted by this. Like, doesn't this teacher know who this woman is? But then knowing what's in the Pharisee's mind, Jesus shares this parable. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And the Pharisee hums and haws about it. Well, probably the one that had the greater debt. The one to whom the act of mercy meant more. The one who had the larger amount of debt. The one, in other words, who was in a position of longing more deeply for resolution, for things to be resolved, the one who knew he needed the most help, the one, perhaps, if I can use an image, who was in the deepest, darkest tunnel, the furthest away from the mouth of the cave, the one who knew he needed the most help. This is the kind of humility that Mary displays, and it's what makes her stand out in scripture. It's why those words that she says to the angel, may it be to me as you have said, are so famous. It's because it's that posture, that open, humble, receiving posture that she has. It's this kind of longing. I mean, think about it. Of all the ways for God to show up in the world, he picks, you know, little old, probably 15-ish year old Mary from Podunk, Galilee, and hillbilly Nazareth, right, to, to usher in the Messiah, like, who would have picked her to bring the righteous branch, the new king that the prophets like Jeremiah prophesied about? You could have picked a more grandiose entrance if you had spent so many years prophesying about it, but he doesn't do that. And he uses her not simply because she's humble, but because that humility arises out of a longing a deep longing, a longing for the world to be ordered by the right king, for the right king to be in charge, for societal values to mirror his values, for that which is broken to be fixed for the long term by him, by the right king, who was always supposed to be, from the very beginning, the one in charge, a longing for him to be the one to set things right, for resolution to the chaos, for a coming home of God to his people, for peace, for peace. Mary longed for that more than anything, more than the desire to, to be married, to bear children, to live up to her family's expectations, to live a life of submission to other people's plans and ideas and schedules. The, see, the, the greatest issue for Mary wasn't any of that. It wasn't, it wasn't that her people were trapped under the tyranny of Rome. It wasn't that 
They didn't have autonomy in their own land. It wasn't that they were constantly in the midst of civil wars and fake messiahs and you know, increasing religious pressure from the leaders of Jerusalem. It wasn't any of that. It wasn't even that she had to walk around prophesying that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, which would have been very difficult. All of that chaos mattered little in light of the reality that God was not dwelling among them as he promised he would. God was not with them as he promised he would be. That the voice calling out in the wilderness to prepare a way for the Lord had not yet spoken. Until now. Until now. For Mary, that longing for peace and resolution was finally finding some relief in the words that the angel brought to her. And what she reminds us of in her song is this, that whenever chaos erupts, right, whenever our circumstances take a turn for the worst or we fear worst case scenario, whenever we see what's happening in the world and, and just feel overwhelmed by the harm that one man can do to another, in the times that we, we long, we truly long for peace, for restoration, for a sort of holistic healing when we want relief and we just can't wait any longer for it, Mary reminds us that the Father is actually the one who is waiting for us. He's waiting for us. Because He is coming. He has come. Waiting for us to navigate through the, the dark chaos of our tunnel vision fears and to find him waiting on the other side. Corey ten Boom once said, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look to God, you'll be at rest. And she would know. If you know her story, she would know. Finding peace, in other words, in the chaos requires a sort of wholehearted humility, a deep humility, to focus on what God is doing, to get outside of our own narratives, out of our own fears, out of the own chaos of our own existence, and to imagine the bigger picture, to see our great need and our great longing for His presence to be present, to be embraceable, like the Father waiting at the end of a cave for his child to come home. Look again at how Mary does this in her Magnificat. In verse 50, her rejoicing shifts very quickly from herself to focus on what God must be up to. And, and, the, and the key there is right in the middle. Holy is his name. Right at that shift, she goes straight into what he's doing. This is what he's doing. Look at all the things that he does, Mary says. And if he's doing something now in me, something something in, in someone like me, so lowly and insignificant as me, that that must mean that his rescue mission is beginning. That it's begun, that the rough dirt is starting to be churned up, the drills are going, the excavation is beginning, and he's coming to find us. He's coming to find us. That's the good news of Mary's Magnificat. Because... The means by which he can find us is coming into the world. Remember what the angel told Mary, that this is the one 
who will inhabit the throne of David, who will reign forever and whose kingdom will never end, the king who was always meant to be king. And this new king is the means by which the Father comes to us. See, because Jesus, if I can again go back to that image, the analogy, Jesus is the great treasure that was sacrificed in order to allow the Father to come to us. Jesus is the shoes that the Father puts on to make the trek. Jesus is the pathway that the Father walks on to get to the cave. Jesus is the excavator that digs into the ground, paving a way so that the rescue can occur. Jesus is the way by which the Father comes to us in every way. And in his humility, a baby was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And we who were trapped in darkness have seen, finally, a light of hope. A light shining through the dirt and the grime and the rock. A light coming into the chaos. Christ's coming is that light into the chaos. And Mary shows us that what it takes to actually receive this peace, mirroring the great humility of her God, is humility. It takes great humility to truly live into this story. It does. We so often just gloss over these words, but these are powerful statements that Mary is making. Statements that wouldn't fly in other parts of the world. You've got to think of brothers and sisters who live in North Korea or China even. Right? You can't say these things in other parts of the world. And we just gloss over them as pretty Christmas things. We, we don't think about what she's actually saying. You know, perhaps for some of us, we're so accustomed to living comfortably and affluently, we don't even long for Christ's peace because... We're too busy manufacturing our own, right? I can buy pretty much anything else, it seems. I might as well try to buy myself peace, right? It's hard to grasp the peace of Christ when most of our efforts are actually geared towards ignoring the chaos. I'm going to say that again. It's hard to grasp the peace of Christ when most of our efforts are actually geared towards ignoring the chaos. You know, we don't even really think much about this, but it's actually hard even just to be a Christian in this day and age, when there's so many philosophies and worldviews around us that are pointing against it, pointing out failures, attacking the virtues, judging the hypocrisy. For us, it, honestly, sometimes it feels like we're trying to be fish swimming in a mud pit. It, it, there's a lot working against us. There's a lot working against this story of Christmas. But I want to encourage you this morning that what will enable us to truly live into this story, this whole greater narrative, as Mary did, isn't some kind of revolutionary grit or, or aggressive advocating for ourselves. It's humility. It's humility. The kind of humility that you feel when you cradle an, a newborn baby in your arms and, and wonder at the mystery of it, the kind of humility you feel when you sit with someone who's grieving and you really can't do anything other than offer your presence and trust the Spirit to move. 
The kind of humility you feel when you see war and chaos and and natural disasters on the news and, and feel so insignificantly small that all you can do is pray that the King of Peace would usher himself back into this world and bring resolution. Right? That's the kind of longing we need to grasp and not forget about. The kind of humility that enables us to sit in the tunnel of our existence, acknowledging the darkness around us, and yet looking for the cracks of light coming through. The cracks of light that remind us that peace is on the way, that signal that hope is coming. To feel the warmth and the serenity of Christmas lights in the dark and the colors and the shimmering glitter around us against the backdrop of winter and to be reminded, to to let these things be a reminder to us, not a distraction, but a reminder. Every time we see light against darkness, different colors shimmering in the dark, to let that be a reminder to us of a kind of peace that ends war. A peace that solves conflicts forever. A peace that mends broken hearts and brings resolution to our grief. A peace that is the only solution to the problems that we have no ability to control and apparently no future ability to control either. It's our human instinct to want control, of course, when we're afraid. When we either can't let go of the past or we can't let go of the future. It's usually one or the other. (laughs) And, And we simply don't realize that what we need is the humility to say simply, I need peace. To recognize that at the heart of our deepest longings is actually a longing for peace. In some shape or form. And Mary reminds us, her song reminds us, that this kind of deep, long-lasting, eternally fulfilling peace can only come not through an event or a certain way of thinking or a certain system of thought, but through a person, a king, a humble king who paves the way for the father to be reunited with his children. As the prophet Micah put it, he will be our peace. Right at the end of that that passage there. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. The more that we long for his peace, the more that we long for his coming, the more we will actively and openly and humbly actually seek his peace now. The more that we ache for a reuniting of God and his people. You know, that that day, that day we're all longing for when heaven and earth actually become one. When the king is here, when what we only see and experience now in part will one day be in full. That thing that we're longing for When we ache for it, we will more regularly rely on his peace to sustain us in the waiting. 
during the course of those 17 days that the men were trapped in the tunnel, rescue workers had been able to drill through enough of the rock and the dirt to insert a, a pipe or piping that allowed for two-way radios to be passed through so that the men on the other side could actually converse with their parents or with their loved ones. Manjeet, the young man that I spoke of earlier, was able to hear his father's voice, knowing that he was waiting for him just on the other side, knowing that there was a peace, that peace that sustained him in the waiting. This is what Christmas does for us. This is what Christ does for us. It reminds us of the kind of peace that sustains us in the waiting because Christ is the means by which we communicate with the Father. There's already a pathway that's been created. We just don't yet see it in full. But his coming ushers in a new era where God's people can know and trust that peace is on the way. It's coming. As Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He has been mindful of our humble state, mindful of the grief that so often plagues us, waiting for that peace that never seems to come. He has been mindful. And he's coming. The prophets were right. It doesn't matter who sits on the political throne. It doesn't matter who has power in society or how rich the rich are or the poor, how poor the poor are. God's rescue mission is working. It's coming. This is the story that needs to captivate our hearts. We see it in part, but we wait and we long for when we'll see it in full. As Henry Nouwen put it, the Lord is coming always coming. When you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you will recognize him at any moment in your life. All of life, in other words, is Advent. All of life is Advent. It's longing. It's looking for his coming. It's awaiting his rescue. It's longing for his presence over and above all the chaos, humbly resting in the comfort that his presence is near even if we can't see it or feel it. His presence is near. It's close by. It's just on the other side. It's near. And we long for the peace of that embrace, when everything will be made right. The embrace of a father whose kiss of love in the form of a baby captures the hearts of the world. Would you pray with me? Living God, each of us are here today with different longings in our hearts, different aches for this season even, different aches for the varying things that seem to bring chaos and keep us from having a peace of mind about where we are, about our circumstances, about our loved ones, about the brokenness we are feeling. Lord, we long for peace. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, 
all the songs and the decor and the lights of this season would point us in that direction of your peace. That you would remind us that you are the one who ushers in a peace that this world has never seen. Lord, we long for that kind of peace. And we ask that by your spirit, you would sustain us in the waiting. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.